Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. Nine verses of Scripture. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name, tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. I am drawing this morning from verse 9. In the King James, it reads, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And in the ESV, it uses the word splendor. This is one case in a more modern translation. I think we use the old word more often in our language. I don't know how often people use the word splendor, uh, but we certainly use the word beauty a lot. And this morning, I'm just going to speak and preach and, and maybe even more teaching on the beauty of holiness. Let's pray. Father, your word is forever settled in heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, but your word stands forever. So I ask you this morning, as your word is already anointed, anoint our hearts to receive, our ears to hear, and let this transform us in ways that we can't understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I began in ministry doing a lot of nursing home and hospital visitation. I would every Sunday after church go, I did this for several years, I would go visit after lunch, I would go to two nursing homes that were just down the street from each other and make the rounds. At the time there were a lot of people that were in our church that had ended up in those nursing homes and that was really the purpose of that. Um, and then as you made your weekly rounds there would be people that would stop and see you and uh, you know holler at you, pull you inside uh, and I did that for several years. Hospital visitation as well. Uh, COVID kind of threw a, a wrench in ministerial hospital visitation because hospitals clamped down on who you could come in and see. Uh, but before then, uh, especially as a minister, you pretty much had access to uh, anywhere in the hospital. But imagine living in a world without the curse of sin. Because the curse of sin is sickness and death that we all will experience it's just part of who we are as, as humans, that none of us are in this life eternal. But imagine a world without hospitals, without nursing homes, funeral homes, cemeteries, doctors, prisons. We don't stop and realize the effect that sin has on our lives and our society. 
It's hard for us to imagine it because we are immersed in a world that is full of darkness and despair. But in the beginning of creation, God created Adam and Eve in His image, and He created them without sin. And they lived in a world that was free from the curse of sin. Now, the Bible doesn't go into great detail about uh, the environment they lived in. When we talk about the Garden of Eden, this is actual temple language. It was like a temple, uh, the setting that they were in. But we can't imagine that it was a place of beauty and perfection. And He gave them dominion over every living thing on the earth. The holiness of God was on full display in a world that was not yet marred by sin. So what is holiness? Well, holiness is the nature of God. It's who God is and it's what He is. His holiness is a description of His absolute perfection. When we say that He is a holy God, we are acknowledging His qualification to be Lord of the universe and Master of our lives. And when Adam and Eve sinned, they brought the curse of sickness and death into the world. And the authors of Scripture reference this throughout the Bible. When David writes, I was born in sin, he was writing of the curse of sin that continues yet until this day. What God's redemptive plan does is it brings His creation back into right relationship with Him. This is really the whole story of the Bible. It's the story of creation, how God creates everything in perfection and holiness. The story of the fall of man and the introduction of sin into the world. And then it's God's long history of restoring His creation back into right relationship with Him. And it starts with His redemption of mankind through His death on the cross, and it finishes with God presenting the redeemed people a new heaven and a new earth. This is the reality that we will live in throughout all of eternity. We're not going to live in a big cubed gold box in the sky. That's not the language of Scripture. The language of Scripture is that we live all eternity throughout a restored creation. The Bible opens and closes both with a universe without sin that is saturated in the holiness of God. But we today are living in the in-between. It won't always be like this, however. There is really coming a day where there will be no more sin, no more sorrow, sickness, or death. But even in a world full of sin, God requires holiness of His people. God's desire for us to be holy is both a calling and a command. And there is constant tension in the life of every believer caused by us trying to live a sinless life while living in a body that has a sinful nature. This is the whole tone of Romans chapter 7 where the Apostle Paul cries out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, and I think we can all identify with what Paul says, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul's not saying you have a license to just go live any way you want, but he's saying with my mind I have a mind toward God, but in my body I have a body that is inclined to sin. In the Old Testament, the tone of God's desire for His people also came in the form of a command. This was achieved through the sacrifice of animals and ceremonial cleansing commanded by the Old Testament law. But mostly the standard of holiness in the Old Testament was external. In the New Testament, the command to be holy changes not to exclude the outward person, but to include the condition of the heart and the mind. 
Now inward transformation was possible because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And for the first time in God's redemptive plan, people could be holy because they had the Spirit of God living inside of them. So New Covenant, New Testament holiness is the call of God's Spirit to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be holy in the New Testament, to be transformed into the image of Christ. Holiness moves from ritualistic cleansing in the Old Testament to inward cleansing and purity with the dawn of the New Covenant. The Mosaic Law of the Old Covenant with all that complicated, I have never begun to grasp all the details and nuances of what it meant to live as the people of God in the Old Testament in a very complicated system of sacrifices. I mean, you read through the book of Leviticus and it's just, there's a lot there. There's so much there that there were people who professionally, that's all they did was manage the sacrificial system. This was the priests of the temple. But that law of the Old Covenant was not abolished, but it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It was nailed to the cross at Calvary, Colossians 2. The New Covenant did not establish the eternal moral law of God, but it rather instituted a new expression of morality through the law of Jesus Christ. So listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable for, to judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. He's talking about inward emotions now rather than just the external deed. The moral law of God evolved from the prohibition of outward acts to now include the condition of the heart. And now the call of holiness is a call for our thoughts and motives and drives and desires and deeds to all be in conformity with the will and purpose of God. And this cannot be achieved through mere discipline alone. Every single one of us have a poor track record of doing what we know is right to do by sheer force of will. To be truly holy is to be dead to ourselves and alive in Jesus Christ. But the doctrine, the idea of holiness in the Old Testament and the New Testament is built upon the principle of separation. So in the Levitical law, there were these prescribed rituals that consecrated not only the priests in the temple, but also the instruments used in temple service. The man of God and the instruments of worship were set apart, set apart for, ser for service. So you could have in the Old Testament, you could have this fork that was used to stab the meat of the animal to put upon the altar in the fire, that fork was considered to be holy. The reason why it was holy was it was set apart for service. It had been sanctified. It had been said, this utensil is set aside. This is not able to be used by the people when it's time to eat. They cannot go into the temple and grab a fork from the drawer and use it to eat their dinner. Why? Because it had been set apart. It was sanctified. It was holy. That is what the whole idea of principle of holiness is built upon is the principle of separation, to be set apart for something. So God blessed the Sabbath day and He makes it holy and He sets it apart from the other six days. This day in, in Scripture, in the Old Testament, to honor the Sabbath meant to set apart a day that was not like the other six days. The Old Testament Jews were forbidden by the law in Scripture to plow with an ox and a donkey together. You couldn't mix animals. 
you were not allowed to wear clothes that mixed linen and wool. Uh, your tag in your shirt better say 100% wool or 100% linen. There were no mixed fabrics. This is in Scripture. This is the type of uh, idea that was set upon the people of God that separation was so important. Now, we don't live under that system today, but the people of God in the Old Testament did. And the Old Testament Scriptures are full of examples of separation. And what that does is it casts a shadow into the New Testament about what it means to be a separate people. So the early Jewish church in the New Testament would have been familiar with the call of separation and holiness that is found in the Old Testament with the understanding that the church in the New Testament is spiritual Israel, they would have expected the call of holiness to continue into the New Testament. Israel's called to be holy in the Old Testament. Naturally, the church, as the fulfillment of Israel, would be expected to be holy in the New Testament. So let me read to you what Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and keeping in mind that Corinth was... Corinth made Las Vegas look like a Sunday morning church service. Um, it was pure, unbridled hedonism and idolatry in Corinth. The things that went on there in the name of religion are things that I couldn't talk about even uh, in, in a mixed audience. Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, speaking of an idol? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall also be my people. Therefore, Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, thus saith the Lord God Almighty. 2 Corinthians 6. Now when we read this, these verses have overtones of the Old Testament. I mean, the Old Testament, we're used to reading a lot of, don't do this, thou shalt not. The New Testament, we don't get that that often but here we do Paul's saying come out from among them and be ye separate thus saith the Lord touch not the unclean thing uh, he's echoing sentiments of the Old Testament they're firmly rooted in the new covenant that which is declared holy by God is always called to separation and here's where sometimes we have it backwards we think that we are called to be separate so that we can then be holy one of the greatest mistakes in Christianity today. You need to be separate so you can be holy. And that's not how it works because you can't do anything. You could live the life of a monk completely set apart from anything this world has. You could live in a backside of a mountain and just live the most moral life you could possibly live has nothing to do with making you holy. He calls us to be holy first so that we can then be separate. The holiness comes first, and the holiness is not based upon our actions or how we live our lives. Holiness is a state of belonging. I have a friend of mine who wrote his uh, master's thesis uh, for uh, 
Bershon Graduate School. He wrote his master's thesis on holiness. And the whole premise of his final paper at the end of an eight-year journey was that it, what it means to be holy is that it means to belong to God. It is a state and a sense of belonging. He called me, he said, would you proof my paper for me? And he said, when I'm done, he said, I don't know if I'll still hold credentials in this organization after they're done reading this paper. He said, but will you proof my paper? And I spent a lot of time proofing and uh, his, his final paper. And it was a phenomenal read to read this. I said, you've got to publish this and put this in a book because this is what people need to hear. To be holy is not just a sense of the way that you live. To be holy is to be sanctified, to be set apart unto God. You belong to God. I am holy because I belong to Him. That's what makes me holy. I am holy now because I have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And His Spirit in me makes me holy because I belong to Him. I am holy by proxy because only God is truly holy. So if I am going to be holy, then I am holy because I belong to Him. He calls us to be holy first so that then we can be separate. And when we think differently about holiness in these terms, it helps us move from legalism, don't do this, do this, don't go there, live this way, and now you're saved. That's legalism. That's not biblical, scriptural, gospel reality. The reality is God saves you and He sanctifies you and He gives you the power to say, okay, now out of a, a response and a way to honor God, now I don't do these things as a way to honor Him. And that moves us from legalism to holiness. No longer I'm keeping myself saved by my separation. Now it's my salvation is empowering me to live separate, thus pleasing God by abstaining from certain things that this world has to offer. And in the new covenant, the call to separation includes a promise. I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord. After Paul writes all of these things, come out from among them and be ye separate, thus saith the Lord. If you do these things, I am going to be a father to you and you will be like children to me. That's the joy of our holiness, the promise of a relationship with God. And there is no greater relationship on this planet than to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We, we talk about, it, it's become such a cliche that it becomes mocked in Christianity. You know, well, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and personal Savior, and now I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me tell you this morning, if you really, truly have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that is nothing trite. That is nothing shallow. To know the God of this universe and to be able to talk to Him and He talk back to you and you able to read His Word and he, He's able to speak to you through His Word and you have that one-on-one -on -one personal relationship, there is nothing shallow about that. That's the joy of what it means to be holy. And the call to separation in chapter 6 is one of the clearest passages in the Bible that does call us to live clean and pure. Paul continues with this theme in chapter 7 when he writes, since we have these promises, and let me just do a little sidebar here. It's, I found this to be true reading scripture and I want to help you see this as well. You can put scripture into silos when you read a chapter and then you just leave that chapter there and you don't pay attention to what's after that chapter or before that chapter. The only 
biblical separation of chapters that we have is the book of Psalms because those were separate Psalms. But in Scripture, when we read 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and we go to chapter 7, the writers of Scripture were not writing chapter 6 and now I'm going to go to chapter 7. It's one continuous flow. There are no chapters. There are no verses. Chapters were added hundreds and hundreds of years ago, first without verses, and then later verses were added. Are we glad we have them? Yes. I, how would I tell you to find a Scripture? I would have to say go to 2 Corinthians and... You know, and then where do you go from there? So they broke up the Bible into chapters and verses to help people find things. But the natural flow of a writer's thought doesn't stop at the end of the chapter. And sometimes we, we end that chapter and say, okay, that's all that there is. When the following verses just continue on, you've got to pull out that chapter separation. Here is a great example in 2 Corinthians 6 and 7. So in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul says, since we have these promises... Well, what promises is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the promises he just wrote about one sentence earlier that was in chapter 6. So we've got to pull out that, that, that barrier there and say, okay, this is one flow of an idea. And if you get that, it will help you read Scripture better. Since we have these promises, the promises were that he's going to be a father to you and we will be children to him. Since we have those promise, promises, let us cleanse ourselves. So notice the promise comes first. He's going to be our God. He's going to be our Father. We're His children. Since we have that, now out of response to that, let us cleanse ourselves. We don't cleanse ourselves so that He can be for us. God's for us on the basis of our faith. But after He is for us, now the response is, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body, that's external, spirit, that's internal, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. There isn't a lot of fear of God going on anymore. God is God and I am not. And the fear of God is not a, to be afraid of Him, but it is that reverence towards Him. It is that healthy respect toward Him. And without the gospel and without God for me, I should actually be afraid of God. Um, the gospel is what turns the wrath of God away from me and puts it upon Christ on the cross. But there is not a lot of reverence going on today, even inside church houses. And I'll try not to go off on a tangent here on that. Um, I have been doing this a long time. We could create any kind of atmosphere in here that we wanted to create. Uh, we could have adult bounce houses for Jesus if we wanted to. Um, but I just don't see the reverence in having church like that. There ought to be a reverence and a healthy respect when we walk inside these four walls. When we walk across this threshold, we leave the secular and enter into the sacred. We leave the profane and enter into the holy. This is a holy place when we meet together. Now these verses are written to cleanse yourselves from the filthiness of the body and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. ESV bringing holiness to completion. The King James says perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 
These verses were written to the church at Corinth. Jesus name baptized spirit-filled believers who needed to hear the call of purity. This was written to Christians saying, as Christians you need to be pure. And the same is true for the modern day church. Regardless of how long we walk with God, whether you're new to faith or whether we've been doing this a long time, we all need to hear the call to holiness. Even seasoned saints can find themselves needing to hear that call. It is a lifetime endeavor to perfect holiness in the fear of God. And in doing so, we're not trying to earn our salvation, but rather we're trying to walk on the path that furthers our sanctification. I want to be more like Jesus because I'm not like Jesus yet. I say I'm a Christian. Do I fully reflect the nature of Christ? Not in a million years. Will I ever perfectly? No, not in this lifetime. So to say that I'm a Christian, well, he's Christ-like. Well, nobody's fully Christ-like. Nobody is there. We all have attitudes and drives and motives and emotions and inner things. And like to get the outside guy cleaned up, that's easy. That, that's no problem. That's not nothing, but that's the easier part. It's the inward person that nobody else sees that we spend a lifetime trying to get to reflect his glory. Paul teaches that we must cleanse ourselves. Now, there are churches that preach hard against the sins of the body, but completely neglect the impurities of the heart and the mind. And this results in people who appear to live right, but may not have a heart toward God. And often in these churches, there are great hidden sins in the lives of people because the appearance of holy is valued over the experience of holiness. That's the easier path to take. It's not as complicated and messy to get people to conform externally as it is to deal with the long-standing strongholds that exist in our hearts. And churches that value the external and minimize the internal often slide into self-righteousness and legalism. And there always is the other end of the spectrum. There are churches that emphasize the matters of the heart without addressing the sins that we can commit. And these churches have mass popular appeal because people are hungry for a change on the inside, and rightfully so. They can find change on the inside there. They need a message of hope to pull them out of the despair and lift them up to a place of hope and joy. But at the same time, there has to be a balancing act of that that says all of that inward purity will and must result in external transformation on how we live. So to say that we need to preach against the filthiness of the body or the flesh or the spirit is a false dichotomy. It's not either or, it's both and. The scriptures are clear on this. And a healthy church, what a healthy church does is it leads people along the path of discipleship with teaching and preaching that edifies both the inner and the outer person. But holiness begins with the cleansing of our spirit. Every single one of us, every single one of us come to God with baggage in our lives. Some more than others. There are people who have lived a life that is deep in sin, or there's people who have uh, been victims, true victims. We talk about a victim mentality, and a lot of times that's talking about people who weren't really victims, but they play the victim. There is that, but there are people who really are victims. I've dealt with people who had zero control over the lot that they were handed in life. They were dealt a hand they couldn't control, and now they carry that baggage with them. Often things that happened in childhood 
or at a very young age now are affecting them throughout their entire lives. That's the reality of living in a broken world. Everybody comes to the cross with those things, carrying a heavy load, and yet we are transformed and made new creatures in Christ, and yet the realities of life that the wounds and scars from the past don't always go away without continual exposure of the Spirit. God can heal instantaneously, and He does, but God often heals through process and through time. I've, I, I do not understand the preacher or the pastor that thinks that they are qualified to counsel people in certain areas simply because they have a skill set to preach the Word. I am not qualified to offer counseling in most situations. In most situations, I would immediately deflect and defer and say you need to see a counselor who is trained in this area. These are heavy, deep, complicated areas and uh, my status as someone who is a preacher, who is a minister of the gospel, does not qualify me to deal in most of those situations. It's complicated. There is a lot to that. But the good news is that Jesus can and does heal any heart, take away any hurt, and cleanse us from any sin. He can heal the heart. Those things that have bound people, have bound you for years, God can set you free from those things. He can heal you from those. He can do it instantaneously. He may do it over a process, over the lifetime. That's up to Him, but He can and will help us. We also must guard our hearts from impure motives and ideas and drives, things that can creep into our heart over time. Often, the longer that you walk with God, a lot of times it's things like pride and ego that get a hold of you when you've walked with God for many years or when you experience some kind of success in life. Now that pride and that ego is just as dangerous as the things that were damaging you and hindering you when you came to God. We serve ourselves well if we daily examine our heart and our mind and repent toward God. And all of the natural result of inward holiness is outward purity. And much of modern Christianity has ignored the clear admonitions of Scripture to reflect Jesus Christ in conduct, but it does matter and we ignore it to our own detriment. The child of God should act and walk differently than people who do not know Christ. There was a time in 20th century Christianity when worldliness, with big air quotes, that's a term, when worldliness was preached against strong from the pulpit regardless of denomination. It didn't matter. Worldliness was a thing um, that was preached against. Someone asked a preacher friend of mine one time in a board meeting, said, Preacher, what is worldliness anyway? And he smiled. He said, You know, one time I think I could have told you, but nowadays, he said, I'm not quite so sure. He said people understand what that means. In our modern religious culture this is de-emphasized or eliminated altogether and once again to our own detriment. The call to be separate and to live holy should be preached in love and it doesn't have to be harsh to be, to be effective but it must be preached. The failure to cry out against the world, when we talk about the world we're talking about the value systems and the priorities and the way that the culture sets and determines priorities over against what Scripture sets as priorities. They are complete opposites. They're flipped. They're not the same. The life looks different looking at it through the lens of Scripture than it does looking at it through the lens of a secular culture. 
and the failure to cry out against the world defined that way is a failure to recognize the destructive power of sin in the lives of God's people. And ministers of the gospel are called to be watchmen over the souls of the people under their care. So John writes, Don't love the world or the things in the world, and if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, you want a good biblical definition of the world, here it is. All that is in the world, John defines it, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires, but whosoever does the will of God abides forever. John wrote those words nearly 2,000 years ago. And he describes the world he lived in as a place that was full of self and full of pride, and nothing has changed over the last 20 centuries. The spirit of this world fills the music, the entertainment, the fashion, the leisure of our generation. It just saturates everything, and it pushes out any idea of God and this overt hyper sensual culture that we live in regards so many of the ideas that Christianity teaches as antiquated or not relevant or uh, we we have to have a trajectory that the Bible meant that then but today in this culture well it doesn't really work for us we are in a nation that no longer reflects Christian values or ethics the United States and much of the modern Western world resembles, very much resembles the hedonistic cultures of ancient Rome and Greece. Read about ancient Rome, read about ancient Greece, and look at the trajectory that we're on and see how the two are parallel. Say, well, you gave us all the, gave us all the problems. Anybody can come in and tell us the problem. Is there a solution? And there is. If we are going to reach this sin-saturated generation, we must preach the whole counsel of God. We must proclaim that there is joy and beauty that cannot be found in this world. That's the key to overcoming sin. One of the keys is that you have to be able to see that there is joy and beauty that is found in Christ that cannot be found anywhere else. In your presence, the psalmist said, is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Joy and pleasure sounds kind of hedonistic. It is hedonistic. Uh, the, one of my favorite phrases uh, is the phrase of Christian hedonism. Uh, it was in the book that uh, I gave you, you probably read across that quite a bit, about Christian hedonism. Uh, the phrase, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in Him. That was my screensaver for years. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in Him. When I find my satisfaction in Him, that's when He gets the most glory. So I am I'm seeking pleasure. We're all seeking pleasure. We're pleasure-seeking people. And God says, fine, go seek pleasure. Just seek it in me instead of anywhere else. Find pleasure in me. We have lots of scripture for that. The, the, the psalm that I just quoted. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
Is there pleasure in sin? Yes. The Bible says that there is pleasure in sin, and then it puts a disclaimer on it. It says, for a season. So the pleasure of sin is temporary. The pleasures in Christ are eternal forevermore. That's the key to this, to everything that, that relates to holiness. Sin is temporary. The pleasures in Christ are eternal. And we're not making those equal. We're not saying that there's equal pleasure in sin and then equal pleasure in Christ. The pleasure that is to be found in Christ is of infinite value and worth than the pleasure in sin. I contend the primary function of preaching is to declare Jesus Christ from the Scriptures and to show Him as supreme in the Word of God through biblical exposition. This is what we do here on Sundays, is that we see Jesus in the Scripture, and then we proclaim Him and say, there is joy to be found in Him that you can't find anywhere else. And then we all have the choice to walk out of here and go live in the fog of the secular world and test whether or not that's true. Every single one of us get the opportunity to test, is this true? Am I going to go out there this week and believe what I heard on Sunday or am I going to go test and see if the pleasure of sin is of anywhere of equal value of the pleasure that is found in Jesus Christ? I would say, because I said that's the primary purpose of preaching, I would say there is, however, a secondary function of preaching that is practical. And that is taking all these ideas and then saying, okay, how do we apply them to everyday life? There is a trend in some churches to stress the practical side of preaching. This comes from a hunger to see greater, seek greater understanding on how to understand the Bible. How does it apply to my everyday life? Preacher, if you can't give me something that's relevant on Sundays that I can apply to the rest of my life, you're kind of wasting my time. And then I'd say, yes, I, I agree with that. There has to be some connection to say, how does this apply to what I'm doing on the job Tuesday morning or with my family on Friday night? So yeah, we have to make those connections. While a person's ability to live different because they say Jesus, they see Jesus exalted in the Scripture, when you can see Jesus exalted in the Scripture and it causes you to live differently because of that, that is a mark of Christian maturity. And then we try to take that and apply it. How does that apply in my everyday life? And nowhere is this more needed than in the area of personal holiness. There are in some churches, holiness is reduced to a standard set by the church or by the pastor. Here we have standards, and standards aren't wrong. Uh, they're, they're good, especially when it comes to leadership. If a person's in leadership in a church, there, there should be a, maybe a different standard there. Uh, so often, usually the rule is in a church, someone who is coming in who may not um, be living up to a lot of the expectations that you would expect of a Christian. There are places and areas to plug people in so they can get involved, but for leadership, for teaching, for preaching, for leading in, in worship and things like this, there are, there are standards. So we're not saying that there should not be standards. Those standards can cover how a person dresses or the conduct that they lead outside these four walls, and there's nothing wrong with that. It, it's right and proper for a church to have those. However, the standard was never meant to replace true holiness. A person could meet the external minimum requirement and have a heart full of sin. So I cannot size you up and say, well, all of these check marks match. You must have a pure, clean heart. 
I don't know that. I don't see that. Only God sees that. The biblical acceptable standard of holiness is total transformation in both the inward and the outward person. And this will cause an outward change that often exceeds standards that are issued and set forth. When a man or woman has a heart toward God, they will shun sin and the very appearance of evil. That may be the defining idea of what it means to be personally holy. When a man or woman has a heart toward God, they will shun sin and the very appearance of evil. We can be happy in our holiness. Happiness and joyful living cannot be lived apart from the holy nature of Jesus Christ. Separation from sin fuels the joy and peace that we have when we are in right relationship with Jesus. And the holiness of God revealed in us, if it's revealed as the holiness of God and not something legalistic that was set by rules, but if it's truly God's holiness, it will reveal in us beauty and delight and splendor and in a world full of sorrow and we know this world is full of sorrow and brokenness there is a place for true happiness you want to be happy the only place to find true happiness is found in a life that is aligned with God's Word and with God's purpose our pursuit of holiness is our pursuit of a joy-filled life they are not separate you do not have to decide, am I going to choose to live a holy life or am I going to choose to live a life that's full of joy? You don't have to choose either one of those. Let's pray. Father, your word here this morning has brought us delight and comfort and peace and it is our joy and our happiness to be able to even hear your word not my words, not what I've said this morning, but the word that you've spoken to our hearts through your Holy Spirit. We thank you for that this morning. I ask you as we go our way that you would lead us and guide us and direct us into a life full of pure holiness, pure joy, pure delight that is only found in you, that God is most glorified in us as we are most satisfied in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.